One of the uh, things that I think we notice as we engage in meditation practice is that uh, we can find ourselves trying to make it happen, trying to do it, trying to produce something from it or through it. Even the very simple experience of turning our attention to the breathing very easily leads to some sense of needing to do the breath, as though we somehow have to make it happen. And it's rather useful to notice that the breath happens by itself, that in fact we don't need to do anything at all in order for it to simply arise as an experience. The body simply draws in the breath and releases it. And it's rather fortunate, really. I've sometimes reflected on the fact that if we needed to be paying attention to the breath in order for it to actually happen, we'd probably all be much more successful at being attentive to our breath, or we'd be dead. But it doesn't require that of us. Of course, we can attend to it, and it's useful. But the function of breathing is a natural process. It simply happens. by itself. And so much of what is essential and most perhaps in some ways important likewise happens without us being required to make it happen. We're kind of involved in the process at a bodily level, of course. Now if we uh, hold our breath, we can stop it, at least for a little while. But much of the bodily life is self-regulated through its own laws, its own processes. And something like uh, just the fact that it's here at all, of course we, we need to provide some food and you know put it in our mouth as we do, or find some food. But the process of how this body is grown is both uh, mysterious, although science might occasionally have us believe otherwise, and independent of our personal choice or will. It's like we eat food and then it gets turned into these tissues and we can't decide, well I'd like to eat this nice piece of chocolate cake and have it turn up over here as a nice strong piece of muscle. No, it turns up somewhere else as something sort of hanging off. <laughs> we can't decide, well actually I'd like to grow a bit more hair on this place and a bit less on that place. It doesn't happen that way. It just grows, we consume food and the body produces this body. And in so many ways this process goes on, maintaining, I spoke uh, two nights ago about the sensitivity of our body in needing to maintain the core temperature within a very narrow range either side of approximately 37 degrees centigrade. And the body is involved with an immense number of processes in attempting to do that to keep the core at the right temperature. If we had to do it ourselves, applying you know, hot water bottles and ice compacts and all sorts of things, we'd probably feel very ill because we wouldn't be able to do it very well at all. And I reflect on this, not because I want to make this into something of a biology lesson, but because our biology is a reflection of the nature of our life and the nature of life itself, which is what we are interested in here. And the tendency that a number of you have spoken of, and I'm sure probably many, if not all of you, have encountered at times in your practice, is seeing how we want to take control of this process. We want to know where it's going, how it's going to get there, and when we're going to arrive, and what it will be like when we get there. We're not quite sure where we're going, but nonetheless, we have this whole sense of somehow trying to take charge of it. And... It's not really quite like that, the way this process happens. It's not something we can make happen in that way. And it's important to begin to understand that there's an underlying process that we are held in, that we could call life. And to learn to trust that. To learn to trust what it means to be 
that the fact of our being at all is something we can learn to rest in and not needing to feel like we have to make something of it or make it into something which is so much of what we can spend our energy consume our time in it's a little bit like the story that's told in India of a man who's uh, going on a long journey and in, in India there are train, a long train journey and you can make a very long train journey in India you can travel for for days, in fact probably even weeks if you're not travelling on one of the fast trains just to go you know, to some other part of the country and the story is told of this man who carrying a suitcase on his head is, is the, sort of the, probably the most common way of carrying your luggage in the subcontinent walks onto the train and stands or sits in his carriage wherever he was with the suitcase on his head as the, tr- as the journey goes on and one might look and think well that's a little strange it's not really necessary you, and you might even want to explain to this chap well you know you could put that suitcase down and it would come with you once you're on the train you know you get it onto the train sure but once it's on the train it'll just come with you and the way we can often relate to our life it's somehow like we've got to hold this thing to make sure it comes with us or we keep going with it Maybe don't even think about it like that, but that's the sense. It's like, I've got to get hold of this thing. But it's like it's really hard work, it's really heavy. It's like, wow, there's all this weight on me, and yet I can't let it go, we think. Because what will hold it if I don't? It's like somehow I've got to hold this. But we don't need to hold it. It's like we are already held, but we maybe don't really understand what that means. There's a really, uh, I find, beautiful and powerful image one could um, use to get a sense of this. And so just maybe for a moment you could just, you could imagine, you feel free to uh, fantasize for a moment, this is, you know, full permission, to imagine yourself lying down in the grass, the night is clear, the stars are bright. And looking into the, the vastness of the sky, as you may have a chance to tonight, it looks like a potentially clear night, looking into the vastness of the sky, you suddenly realize, as in fact is the case, that you're not looking up into the sky. You are suspended on the bottom of a small planet, hanging above this vast empty space. And let me tell you, from New Zealand, where I come from, this is the bottom. Okay? We have maps that prove it. And if one was lying there, imagine to be hanging, suspended above, looking down into this vast empty space. These very small occasional spots of light. And to realize that if by any chance gravity would cease its operation for just a few moments we would just ping off into the night and you know the odds of finding one of those white spots out there of light are pretty small and yet we take for granted the very fact that somehow gravity holds us somehow we are connected to this earth by something that we can't really understand all we know is that Things, matter, mass, somehow seems to attract other things, matter or mass. That's the law of gravity. Lumps of stuff attract other lumps of stuff, basically. We can describe that, but we can't quite explain it. And yet we trust it every moment of the day. We don't go out there with an um, anchor, you know, bang a pig into the soil before we walk outside the door. And attach ourselves to it. No, we trust that every time every day to understand that this represents and reflects something that is true that is not just about that we are supported by the earth although we are that there's a way in which we when we don't understand what life is we try and carry it as we begin to understand it, we see that, in fact, we are carried by it. 
and the sense of the tight, contracted, desperate, busy, and usually quite tired, if not exhausted, sense of trying to hold on to this thing and keep it together is actually not required. It's surplus. And that we could actually... It's as if we would go outside holding on to the grass, you know, to make sure we didn't fly away. And yet we can live our life that way because we don't trust. And of course... we don't trust for what seem to us like very good reasons because we experience in our life that which we don't wish to experience we experience pain loss grief hurt we find ourselves afraid of the world afraid of others afraid of ourselves because in our past experience in the encounters with the world or with other people or with parts of ourselves it's been painful it's been scary it's been difficult and so the, the view arises, the belief comes that somehow I have to protect myself from life. I have to defend myself against this. And the way we try and do it is by organizing it and controlling it and manipulating it so it will never impact me with something that's painful. But we can't do that. It doesn't work. It's not a successful strategy. to really understand that the difficulties and the challenges that are encountered in life are the raw material for our awakening. Not the obstacles to it. It is not that life or anybody else is really out to get us. Although we might be relating to it as though that's what we think would happen, or what we think has been our experience. It's not to disregard or deny that at times we may have been overwhelmed by the intensity of what we've encountered, and maybe needed in those times, and particularly when young or immature in our development, not yet having our full adult capacity as human beings, that we need to somehow close down to protect ourselves. But that becomes a habit and becomes an attitude as a way of relating to life, which if we don't recognize and release when it's not required, confines and limits us to living in fear and living in a futile and frustrating attempt to control that which is not controllable, but which ultimately does not need us to control it. So are we willing to feel our life directly? This is a question we have to ask. And an important one. Are we willing? Are you willing? Am I willing? To feel my life directly? Because as we practice, part of what's happening is that we are inviting ourselves through this practice to again and again feel it directly. And as we do, the experience starts to open up. We start to feel it. And sometimes we think, I'm not sure that's a good idea. What if it's too much? What if it overwhelms me? What if I don't know what to do? What if it goes on forever? All these thoughts born of fear can arise in our minds. To be able to look into this experience of being alive unflinchingly requires a courage and an understanding of this process that we gain slowly through our willingness to connect and to meet what's happening. And to trust that our experience is not without reason. It's not, being, not happening to us somehow because it's our fault that therefore we have difficult experiences. But it's not happening without some reason. And the reason that we experience the difficult is essentially it's what wakes us up. If nothing was difficult, we'd just go to sleep. And in fact, if we manage for some time to insulate or isolate ourselves from the difficult, 
essentially what we experience is a going to sleep. And in all our cultures, immense development towards being more comfortable, it's equally uh, facilitating an ability to be unconscious that's remarkable and tragic in its effects. So, to be willing to be touched by that which is tender or painful or scary. And to understand that it has its place. As Khalil Gibran wrote in The Prophet, he said, Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Just as the stone of a fruit must break in order that its heart will stand in the sun, so too must you know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracle of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart just as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your land. To understand the times of challenge and difficulty as the season that we're in. To know that seasons have a certain nature that's unstoppable. And at times, it's not perhaps the season we would choose. But just as spring turns into summer and we might enjoy the lush richness, the vitality of growth in spring and the, the flowering and bountifulness of summer, we see it can't continue forever. It eventually dies off and fades back into autumn. And autumn gives way to winter, which may be hard or dry or harsh. And it seems like things are dying off in our life or on the land. But the very nature of winter is that it allows new life to come through. Spring is born through winter. And there's no way we can avoid that in the process. So there are those times when we need to to make space for what might be the winter of our heart. Be willing to turn towards, to open to that. Not to cut off, not to disconnect, not to push it away. Even though we may not be quite sure how to handle it. Ultimately we need to open. Because disconnecting, pulling away, closing down, strangles the very vitality and erodes the juice of our life. So are we willing to feel? Are we willing to feel? It involves taking a bit of a risk. And the risk was illustrated for me uh, a few years ago when I was teaching a retreat in America and I was going for a walk one lunchtime down towards the pond and this is a meditation centre on the east coast IMS walking towards the pond and suddenly across the path there was a large snake and I stopped dead still there's no snakes where I come from this was like snake snake big alert and there's lots of stories in the Buddha's teaching about you know the dangers of confusing snakes and ropes and ropes and snakes and so it all popped into my head within a moment but this isn't about that it was like snake and it was like whoo Incredible mindfulness arises in such moments, you know. I was really there, a little bit scared, but curious also, looking, and the snake looked like it was, you know, quite large, and I didn't move. And then I thought that it didn't move, and it was just right across the path. So I just plucked up my courage, went a little bit closer. Still didn't move. I got closer still, and then I realized it wasn't a snake. It was the skin of a snake. A snake had shed its skin on the path. And, you know, okay. <laughs> um, then I started to think, well, what happened? Why does the snake have to do that? And you realize, which I'm sure you all know, in order to grow, a snake has to shed its skin. 
it has this protective layer around it, this kind of scaly, smooth, protective shell, its skin. But because it's hard and because it's strong in that way, it can't expand. And the snake, in order to grow, has to shed that skin. And I thought about it, and thought, well, and when it comes out of that skin, it can't come out with another fully formed, really hard, solid, safe skin around it, because that one wouldn't be any bigger than the previous one. In fact, it would be smaller. So it must come out of there kind of soft, maybe even a bit pink and juicy. And, you know, kind of, oh, that's a bit risky, because if something turns up looking for a meal, it's going to be vulnerable. It's just coming out of its skin. So it probably doesn't want to do that at some level. thinks, bad idea, bad idea. But if it doesn't do it, it's going to die. Because if you can't grow, you die. It's the nature of life. And so the snake has to expose itself in that way. Every year it has to do it. And it just left behind this piece of once what, what was its skin on the path. But I was really touched by the whole experience because the sense for me is, wow, you know, okay, so sometimes meditation practice is hard, but it's not quite like having to get out of your skin. Although, having said that, sometimes it can feel that way. Like, one is so sensitive, one is so vulnerable, one is tender, one feels kind of juicy on the outside. Because the hardness and the rigidity that we're used to feeling or being encapsulated within is beginning to soften. And this happens whether you want to or not. You might not come along thinking, I'm going to open up and shed that skin. But if you keep coming back into contact with your experience, it's like it happens naturally. It's a natural growing process that happens. We have to grow beyond the safety that is at the same time as it has a sense of safety is confining and limiting. And the willingness to do this, the courage to do this, is something we need to find within ourselves. To see that we are again and again brought by our experience to the places we have to learn and grow. It's, it's inevitable and unstoppable. If we refuse them and say, I'm not going there, I don't want to look at this, in some way or other, life will steer us around to the same kind of situation. It may involve a different place, a different person, a different thing, but the same place of opening or invitation to opening will somehow come back to us and say this is somewhere you have to look at. So to see this process of being brought to our edge as an invitation life inviting us to go beyond the sense of limitation of being bound somehow within a confined a defined but confined sense of your life, of who you are, of what you are, of what is possible for a human being, what is possible for you. And so what this requires is the willingness to enter the territory of uncertainty, the territory of the unknown, the territory of the out of control. Because we can't jump from one place of certainty to another. We can't go from a small, safe little container to a bigger, spacious, safe container. It doesn't work that way. It always involves letting go of what was familiar and safe but limiting in order to enter into something in which there is greater possibility, but at least initially there is also uncertainty, unpredictability, and perhaps fear, perhaps vulnerability. And sometimes I think we feel, and people will report and talk about, I'd really like to let go, but on the other hand, I really don't want to let go. I feel really called to open my heart and my life, and I'm terrified of it. I'm not going to do it. No way. It's a little bit like the story of a man who was walking along the cliff one day and uh, momentarily distracted. He wasn't paying attention to his next step and coming too close to the edge, slipped and fell over this 
probably 100 foot or more cliff. And as he fell, he, started, he, started, he reached out and grabbed hold of a branch about a third of the way down. Branch of a tree. And he grabbed it so tight. He was like, oh. He looked up and there was a sheer rock face. He looked down, sheer rock face, and below it, a river. And he thought, oh no. And despite being a lifelong atheist, he thought, oh God, I need some help. He thought even more, God, if you're out there, if you help me, I believe in you. And there was this, uh, and he said, yeah, it's true, I really believe in you, God. And then there's this loud, rumbling voice that says, from somewhere up in the sky, that's what they all say. And he's so surprised he almost lets go of the branch, but he doesn't, feeling somewhat confident, he says, no, God, it's true, it's true. If you save me, I will believe in you. I will sing your praises. I will tell everyone of your grace and your power. God says, you know, that's what they all say, but I'm going to give you a chance here. I'm a good guy, essentially. So I'm going to save you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, God. That's really great. Thank you. He says, you trust me, you believe in me. Yes, yes, oh, totally. Wow, how wonderful. Good. Okay, I'm going to save you. Let go of the branch. Let go of the branch? Do you think I'm crazy? <laughs> What's the branch you're holding? can't hold it for that long. It's not possible. We get weary. We get tired. It hurts. Hanging on. And yet sometimes we just can't do letting go either. We can't make ourselves let go. But what we can do is begin to examine what it is we're holding. To see, to it's like, I'm not letting go. But look at what we're holding on to. Because if we look at our experience, if we look at what's happening, we see that what we're trying to hold on to is something we can't really grasp. Our experience is constantly changing. The thoughts and the feelings and the sensations and the experiences that are arising for us keep changing from one thing into another. The way we experience our body Sometimes it might be feeling pleasant and alert. Other times heavy and dull. Other times restless or agitated or uncomfortable or hungry or tired. Or blissful. Or whatever. But our body, the experience of our body keeps changing. Sometimes it's easy to be in a posture. Sometimes it's difficult. And if we try and hold on to our body as somehow the secure reference point, we see that it's not, because it's slowly aging. Inevitably, it will die, this body. We can't take hold of it. It's like the tree or the branch will be uprooted from the cliff. And if we're still holding on to it, all we've done is really delay things. And our mind, look at our mind. Have you noticed how long it stays the same? Have you noticed how many different thoughts you had in just the last sitting? How many different mind states? How many times you felt elated, excited, miserable, depressed, anxious, happy, confused? And that's just in a, you know, 20-minute meditation. Now sometimes I feel like I'm doing really well. Now other times I feel like I'm doing hopeless and I better give up. Or I'm better than everyone else. Look at me. Or, wow, they can all do it and I can't. And we move and we morph between these different experiences of ourself. But there's nothing in all of that that we can really take hold of. This we begin to see as we look at our experience, as we feel into our experience. We see how we can create structures or patterns of behavior in attempts to create some security, to protect us from something difficult or to procure something desired certain ways that we behave that maybe long ago we decided this is what I need to do and so we keep doing it maybe unquestioned for decades until we realize that huh, it's not actually working actually 
doing what people want doesn't make them like me. Oh, oh no. Uh, I recently was hearing from a uh, elderly relative um, who was commenting in her 80s. She had the revelation. She said, gosh, I think I've spent my whole life doing what other people want me to do, she said. I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. <laughs> it's like in the 80s. How wonderful. How wonderful. can't hold on to this, what else can we do? Look and see. Is all the holding on really providing us something? Is it really doing what we say? Or imagine it's going to for us? Because as we begin to look and see the insubstantiality, the changing nature of experience, as we see that we can't really hold on, sometimes the thought arises or the feeling, well, this was a bad idea. I shouldn't have done this. I was better off not knowing. Ignorance was bliss. But having begun, really we have no option but to continue. Because we can't pretend anymore. It's a little bit like that scene from The Matrix, the first one, where um, Morpheus, who essentially is representing the wise master, has first met Neo, the, uh, the main character, the hero, who doesn't really quite know what's going on, and having shown him what is going on, i.e. that his mind is enslaved, offers him the option of saying, well, you know, okay, do you want to address this reality, or do you want to go back to your pleasant dream? And it's a hard decision. And we're all really relieved when he chooses to go to take the option to uh, address reality. When he could go back to the pleasant dream, but doesn't. That's our choice, in a certain way. Do we want to go back to a pleasant dream? Meditation won't particularly facilitate that choice. And so... The choice is to look at what's it like to be in this world and maybe to see, do we need to struggle quite so hard? Do we need to hold on quite so tightly? Another image you could bring to mind would be to be walking along a beach on the side of the sea and down the seashore. Imagine you... Uh, somehow get distracted or lose your balance and you fall in. And because you can't swim, you're really worried and you start struggling and splashing and there's fear that arises and you're swallowing the salty water and it burns your eyes and it's like, oh, this is really bad. And then, for some reason, you stop struggling and you realize you're floating. And you discover, oh, that's, you remember, oh, that's right, this is the Dead Sea I was walking beside. You can't actually sink in the Dead Sea. Even if you try, you can't. Understanding what it means to be in life is actually to learn that we are in equilibrium with the very, we could say, fabric of what we're in, what we are. We're not of a different density than the water that surrounds us, and therefore we don't actually sink in it. But the sense of, I might sink, and the struggle and the fear can somehow seem to overwhelm us so that we never realize that. And that's really a tragedy. So letting go, stepping into the unknown, allowing ourselves to experience what is here rather than trying to control or manipulate it. 
This is not some grand gesture that's involved. It's simply that willingness to meet what's here, to not flinch or back away from the truth of our experience right now, right here, in each moment and every moment. That's what's asked. It's not that we have to jump off a cliff somewhere. But sometimes it feels like that's what what we're being asked. And... uh, Joseph Goldstein once commented, he's uh, one of the senior teachers in our tradition and uh, a wonderful practitioner and uh, friend. He, he once said, letting go, it's like going to do your first parachute jump. And you get out of the plane and it's like, Darn, ah! and you realize you've left your parachute behind. It's like, ah! And then you realize there's no ground. What is it? To realize there's no ground. There's no parachute, but there's no ground. What would that require of us to realize? We'd have to see, perhaps, that what we're holding on to we don't really have any firm grip of anyway. We're already in this space. Where at one level there is no ground. And because of that, we're constantly trying to find something solid or fixed. We establish habit patterns, we make fixed views, we attempt to create and sustain a sense of who I am based on what I did and what I didn't do and what I've experienced and whether people like me or don't and all of that in order to create something that feels solid that we can bond onto in the midst of things that just keep unfolding one thing into another one breath into another one step into another one posture into another one meal into another one day into another one moment into the next again and again it happens and we're here in the midst of it What is it to see there's no ground in this? To be able to relax in this condition where it seems we have to tread water or flap our wings, flapping our arms, you know. It's not wings, it's arms. We're flapping our arms, trying to stay in the air. (laughs) You wonder why your shoulders hurt. It's not unrelated. It's like that tightness. It's like we're somewhere trying to control it, pulling in my shoulders. And it's like, oh, do I need to do that? Does it help? Not really, no. So we're kind of like a wave on the ocean. Imagine a wave on the ocean. And to begin with, it's just kind of, this is life, just cruising along. And at some point in our life, we maybe notice somewhere in the distance the waves that are in front of us well in front of rolling into the shore and there's a sense of hmm, that's interesting not much to do with me really long way away and we realize well, actually I'm heading that direction aren't I hmm interesting maybe I'll go the other way <laughs> actually no that doesn't work this, this thing only goes in that direction <laughs> this wave doesn't go backwards it only goes towards the shore hmm, okay so then we start to pay a little bit more attention. We say, wow, those waves way up there at the end, they're hitting that shore and disintegrating. Wow, that's pretty scary. I'm going that way. And we can move somehow in the fear that we have to stave off, we have to pull back from the moment, the movement of our life because it's going to crash into the shore and be destroyed. But... Imagine if this wave, and of course, what else can it do? It travels along. Eventually it comes to the shore, crashes in on the beach. And clearly the wave disappears. But what happens to the water? What happens to the water when the wave hits the shore? Nothing. It's not harmed. 
nature of the water is still to be water. It doesn't even leave the ocean. It's still part of that. When we imagine ourselves to be this body, this mind, this experience that's unfolding, we somehow bind ourselves to something which is inevitably going to dissolve. And we don't have to look into the future towards that time that we call death. In this moment and the next, it is dissolving again and again. When we really look carefully, it is dissolving one moment after the next. And we could start to become really worried. At some level, that fear of dissolution, of destruction, of death, underpins the anxiety that drives us to somehow try and create permanence, fixity, solidity. The sense of me that wants to somehow create a permanent impression on life. But it's like we're writing in the water, drawing lines in liquid, and it just fills. So it never comes to any satisfactory conclusion, that process. But just as the wave is part of the ocean, we are not just this process of thoughts and feelings, of body and mind. We're not something apart from it either. But there's more to understand about what's happening. Just as the wave is not separate from the ocean and the water is unharmed, the nature of what it is to be is not affected, is not harmed by the arising and passing of experience. Nor is it ultimately destroyed or harmed by the death of the body. When we make ourselves separate from, and we do this by claiming anything as what we are, this body, this mind, this experience, our history, our future, when we claim something to be what I am, we implicitly disclaim everything else. Set, create a sense of being separate or apart from. And likewise that happens, of course, when we say, I'm not. No. We create a sense of somehow being other than, separate from, apart from. And this particular construction and perception lies at the very heart of our suffering, of the sense of limitation, of dissatisfaction, and of desperation that can drive our life. And the understanding of this, the recognition and the understanding of this construction, this mechanism, is the key to the releasing of that sense of separateness, that dissatisfaction, that frustration. Releasing into life So we look at what it means to be, to experience this flow, this movement, and the fact that while this flow, it seems, keeps changing from one thing into the next, what we have is this remarkable capacity to know it, to be aware of it, to recognize what is happening, the simple awareness, the conscious presence that receives all of this. It's always here when we remember to turn towards it. It's never somewhere else saying, sorry, not today. There's this capacity in which all of life is revealed, in which all of life and through which all of life is received.
not something we can get hold of. We can really point to. But when we stop trying to hold and to fix and to control and to manipulate, it's like we begin to open ourselves to something else that we can sense. Not with our mind, not with the sensory equipment that we have, the eyes and the ears, the nose, the body, the thinking mind. We can't really get there with that equipment. It's not designed for it. But nonetheless, we can come to understand what is true. And we understand this through releasing our hold on life. The very attempt to save ourselves is what causes us to sink. Because we take hold. It's like you're in the ocean and you say, I've got to grab hold of a cannonball or a large piece of metal. That'll help. No. <laughs> and you get dragged under the water and lose breath and eventually let go of it and you pop up and think, I need another one of those. No. It doesn't work. If it was going to work, it would have worked by now. It's like, can you let go and see what happens? We're already immersed, suspended, floating in life. It is buoyant. It's like it's like ice floating in water. It looks like it's really different. It feels really different. It, you sense of it. It's not really different at all. From a point of view of physics, it's simply vibrating at a different speed. And as a result, has different characteristics. But when you put ice in water, what happens? It slowly dissolves. It melts. It returns into the element which it already is. So there's a way we can understand meditation as allowing ourselves to begin to melt. Allowing the solidity and the certainties of our life to become a little bit softer, a little bit more fluid. We don't have to do this, but we can allow it to happen, because it happens in an organic way, at an appropriate pace. We can't speed it up, but nor can we really slow it down. If we disconnect from the process, we seem to shut it off, although it's still happening in a certain way. Ice melting in water. It's like there's a warmth in the water that infuses the ice. And for the purpose of the image or the metaphor, it's like that there's something, and it's a little tricky with the language, there's something of wholesomeness, of goodness, of kindness, of love in the very nature of things. But so long as we're not in touch with, we kind of feel we have to hold ourselves apart from. Because it seems like it's threatening or dangerous or harmful. Because it hurts. Not understanding that the, the way life touches us that's painful or tender isn't born out of malevolence or some harmful intention. But the nature of life is actually a benevolence that is more interested in... This, this language is a little bit, you know, you have to interpret it, not entirely literally. But it, it's not interested in our comfort. It's interested in our waking up. There's not something which is the it I'm referring to. So far as we're interested in our comfort rather than our waking up, we get into conflict with this. As we become interested in waking up, more interested in waking up than in being comfortable, then we actually come into alignment. We actually start to feel the, the deeper ocean current and the stillness of its depths.
the sense of contraction that we call me, that we call mine, actually begins to expand out into this. Just this. And it isn't born and it doesn't die. And all that is born and dies only does so because of this. And it's not something. And it's not nothing. So hopefully that's enough for your mind not to try and get hold of it. Because it won't. But something in the heart can begin to resonate. And one of the expressions of that resonate, that resonance is beginning to trust in the ocean of life. To allow what we call our life to rest in that ocean without struggle, without fear, with interest to learn to awaken. And this is our potential as human beings. To dissolve the illusion of boundaries and separation. And to come to know the, the peace and the kindness that abides in the heart of life. Well, let's just sit quietly for a minute or two, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.